market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm not sure how long I can keep calling it special because we do it every Sunday, but hopefully the content is special. Certainly our listeners and their questions are special, so we will get on with it. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me this Sunday is Dr. Anirban Mahati. How are you, Doc? Good day, Captain. I'm good. It's uh, a beautiful Thursday here. Oh, isn't it? The sun is out. It's pretty good. I mean, lockdown is still lockdown, but uh, I mean, it's probably going to be raining somewhere. We shouldn't take too much delight because someone's listening to this in the rain, but can't complain, mate. It's lovely weather outside. It's a, it's a beautiful weather, mate, and uh, yeah, a little bit of sun. It's nice and crisp. I like it. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of rain, we did see some rain, at least in western New South Wales. I know there are plenty of parts of Australia still in drought, so we do, despite the fact we've all moved on a little bit to corona, at least in the public imagination and certainly in the media, um, we don't want to forget our, our cousins in the bush who are struggling. Um, New South Wales, as I said, got a bit of rain. South Australia, still massive droughts out there, particularly in some of the northern parts, up the Flinders Ranges and stuff. So we are sending you our, our best wishes, our hopes, and unfortunately, neither Dr. nor I know a good rain dance, but... If we did, we'd certainly send that your way too. Hopefully, this podcast gives you something else to think about and, and listen to, maybe even talk about while you're uh, struggling with the drought and, and lockdown. It's a tough old combination, mate. All right, let's get into it. We got a question from Tegan. Now, you might remember Tegan asked a question last week, Doc, and she replied with another question this week, which i got to say, to lead off the podcast, I'm not overly familiar, at least on a personal level, on a first-hand level, with the analogy she uses, but I'm hoping that given that we like our female listeners and we like questions from our female listeners, hopefully this will resonate at least to some degree. I think, I think I can see my way through to the analogy she's making, but let's see how we go and, and see whether we can, we can, we can get our heads around it enough to answer Tegan's questions. Just thanks for featuring my question in last week's mailbag. You're very welcome, Tegan. Love the guy's response to it. So decided to put forward another. She said, I wonder if it'll make Doc blush. There's a decent lead in. Let's, uh, let's see what Tegan's got to say, Doc. She says, hey, Scott and Doc, prior to becoming a fool this year, my portfolio was largely based on ETFs. And now I think of ETFs as a pair of reliable and unexciting granny panties. Yes, granny panties. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, try and, we'll try and keep the analogy going, see if we can work out what's going on. She says, yes, they are supportive and stable and keep you hugged in all the right places. But come on, we all want a hoard of sexy red lace in our drawers for some excitement. I'm sure you two have your fair share of leopard print tucked away, as you well should. Tegan, it's always best not to assume is all I'm going to say. But the balance of comfort and stability against daring and risk is the mix I'm seeking to find right now. She says, my portfolio was largely 70% ETFs, hashtag granny panties, prior to becoming a fool with a good mix of international and domestic ETFs. I have recently been sitting next to Doc in Extreme Opportunities and following his research and recommendations. And that has seen me adding some more excitement and individual emerging companies, AKA hashtag red lace panties to my portfolio. My question is, with 20 plus years still to go before looking at self-funding one's retirement, what would your view be on the type of shares to focus on purchasing? Would someone in their mid to late 30s still be in the growth stage of their portfolios? Therefore still be buying those red panty high growth shares? And at what point should someone bin those sexy high-growth shares and only seek out the stable and supportive granny panty shares? Hope you enjoyed my visual analogy of your profession and thanks again, Teagues. She says, side note, if Doc does join Instagram, I reckon at Doc the Red Panty Investor should be considered as his handle. 
Now, mate, I'm gonna I'm gonna speculate wildly that you're not gonna take Tegan's suggestion on your Instagram handle. Is that is that close to fair? You know, if I, I was thinking when you were reading this, that if I had to, if I did open an Instagram account, that is exactly the handle to use. Oh, there just we go. Think, so take just think, one so, step you know, closer to Instagram, has she? Just think about the number of followers you're gonna have. It's <laughs> <laughs> part of the trick is to have a good handle, and that's also the problem. So I love, uh, well, it. I love I, the I, handle. I, I'm going to say we've now talked about panties more in the last five minutes than the entire history of this podcast and hopefully, quite frankly, for the entire future of this podcast. But even Tegan's asked the question, we owe it to our listeners to answer their questions, mate. We are nothing if not servants of our listeners. So let's uh, – you can, you can choose how much or how little you want to spend on the analogy, but the general question is Tegan's got 70% ETFs, those, those sable supportive granny panty stocks, and now she's wondering how much, given she's got 20 plus years to go to retirement, how should she mix up the granny panties and the red lace panties in the portfolio? And I'm going to hand that one straight to you. <laughs> so I'm not going to use the panty analogy. <laughs> I'm going to instead stick with the, um, uh, with the ETFs and the high growth or the emerging uh, in the stocks analogy. <laughs> Come on, come on. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to talk about uh, whether it's leopard, uh, le- leopard stripes and whatnot. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to leak what's in my, um, in my drawer. Let me put it that way. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> so with that said, um, I, here's what I think. I, I think that it's a fantastic question. And actually, I, you know, <laughs> the analogy also is interesting. Um, the... <laughs> Uh, the way I think about this is uh, I think every investor needs to find uh, what works for them. So in other words, you know, whether you, you want um, less risky by definition uh, compared to individual stocks as in via the exchange traded funds. Now, here's the thing to realize about exchange traded funds, right? If you've got exchange traded funds and you've got a domestic ETF and you've got an emerging market ETF, well, is the emerging market ETF Yes, it has got uh, no company specific um, uh, issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is any less risky, right? Because again, emerging market by definition is, uh, people would think of it as risky, lots of things, you know, uh, geopolitical issues, uh, disclosure uh, may be an issue, uh, currency movement, currency currency fluctuation in emerging Mm markets. Because it's an issue. So, uh, I mean, if she means international as an in international developed, then that is definitely something. Uh, it, it's, yeah. So I think risk is, again, you have to think about risk in that. You have to think about risk along, I guess, many dimensions. That's one. Um, I think the most important thing, and we've, have, we've said this in the podcast multiple number of times, irrespective of age, I think the most important thing is to realize that you need to do as an investor something mm-hmm. that is going to keep you at it and help you traverse difficult circumstances, you know, volatility, changes in market condition, you know, Corona, nobody knew that Corona is going to be here, right? So, I mean, Corona, whatever else comes next, right? So, you want to be comfortable in your investing style and investing approach. So, and nobody knows um, the investing, and it's a bit of a journey to find the investing style, what works for you, but everyone needs to find that in my view. And once you find it, that gives you the courage and the conviction to 
basically stay at it for a long period of time. And then if you stay at it for a long period of time, as, assuming that you know, it's, a, it's a sane strategy, then you are going to do well, right, uh, over a period of time. Because, you know, investing in markets over long periods of time, generally speaking, has historically delivered, or I shouldn't say generally, historically has delivered good returns. That's number yeah. one. So, um, so I would not say there's a, a recipe that says, you know, you should be an ET because you are X age, at least in my view, should be an ETF because you don't have time to, you know, or you don't love individual investing, investing in individual companies, you don't have the time for it, or you don't have, um, you know, an advisor, an advisory service that you follow and trust that keeps you at it, right? Then, well, what do you do then? Well, the next best thing you can do is, you know, ETF investing, nothing wrong with that. Um, then whether you invest, how much do you invest in growth? Like, I mean, I can't, foresee changing my style. Most of my investing is growth. Now, one of the things that I do think about when I invest in growth companies is like you invest in a company, in a growth company, say you invested today and it's growing, right? At some point, a growth company would mature to become less of a growth company, right? And an example might be, think about Amazon, right? Amazon is still a growth company, but is it the growth company it was 15 years ago? It's not, right? It's a different, it's a different beast today. And uh, that's the journey I look at, you know, as an investor, I'm looking for these companies that I can hold on for really long periods of time. And if I do that, I am going to see a transition of a number of my companies that are going to go from growth to uh, being less growth, maybe, relative to the, the, in the past, but more stable. And ex another example might be, you know, that I love quoting is Apple, right? Apple was a great growth company in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, you know, but the iPhone growth has slowed down, has plateaued. The growth is now, you know, in high single digits, maybe, you know, maybe if you have a few new products, you're going to get into, you know, low double digits, something like that. But it's, going, it's an incredible cash-generated machine. They're going to buy back shares. The dividends are going to go up. Balance sheet is strong. So in that journey, I do not look to sell uh, those companies because they're there and have held them for many years and they're doing their thing and they're still beating the market, right? Of course, if they don't beat the market, then you know you want to think about it. But that's the journey I'm looking at. So uh, as an investor, what I think is that if you're a growth investor and you're young, then you can invest in a number of these companies that are going to grow over time. And wow. then over time... You could still keep adding growth companies because some of these growth companies that you've added early on, 10, 15 years ago, are now mature mid-cap or maybe mature large-cap growth companies, right? So that's the way I, I think about it. And then I, the other thing I do is I think about dividends as a function of my cost basis, which is not how people think about it. But the reason I think about it as a function of cost basis, it gives me this perspective that, wow, I'm getting so much money off in percentage terms of the amount of initial money I invested, right? And that's, that's just to frame that I'm not looking for an 8% yield or a 5%, 7% yield. I'm looking for a growing yield, which off my base of investing is actually pretty solid anyways to start off. So 2% you know, yield today actually might be like you know, 10% of my cost base uh, because the stock has done really well for me. So I, and, and that's a way for me to remind myself that um, you know, I have those capital gains that I've got. And if I need, I can sell off some to right. fund. So that's how I think about it. But I realize a lot of people might think about this differently and everybody's going to think about this probably differently. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, mate. I think, you know, from an ego perspective, that's perfect. I think, Tegan, you know, as Doc said, I think if you can buy stocks that are going to beat the market, then you should be doing that. Uh, ETFs are a wonderful tool for diversification. They're a wonderful tool for, frankly, pretty relaxed, pretty hands-off compounding, which is fantastic. Um, 
the other thing to replicate is, you know, 20 years to retirement, then you've got hopefully 23 or 25 or 28 or 44 years in, re- in retirement. So, yeah, you're, you've got more time probably retired than you've got to retirement. And thinking about compounding for that length of time is also worth thinking about, right? Just, the, the game doesn't stop at retirement. Hopefully, you've, you've amassed enough cash that you want to keep that in, invested in the market for another 20 or 30 or 40 years after retirement age, and that makes a, a big difference. So, Tegan, thank you for that question. Um, hashtag or, or at Doc the Red Panty Investor is uh, here, and I think I almost heard him say he was going to sign up to Instagram. I think it's what I heard. Uh, so we'll see whether he follows through on that. I'll um, I'll check the handle after the podcast. I can see if you've signed up. What do you reckon? I guess um, no. Uh, uh, um, yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to an interesting question from Stephen, mate. He says, Dear Scott and Doc, I listen to your podcast each week, and I really like your take on life and investing. So I value your thoughts on this. I recently read that a tail risk hedge fund, in other words, a fund that's a hedge fund, so it's going long and short, and tail risk meaning it's looking specifically for those really unlikely risks that maybe do come to pass. So tail risk hedge fund, advised by risk management guru Nassim Taleb, returned, get this, 3,612% in March, paying off massively for clients who'd invested in it as a protection against the plunge in stock prices. Given Taleb's great track record with this type of investing, which I think involves buying put options and eventually cashing in when calamity strikes, would we be better off using this approach instead of the traditional approach of diversifying and dollar cost averaging? He says, P.S. Any of your listeners who have not read at least one of Taleb's books should do themselves a favour. That's from Stephen. Doc, that's a, that would be a pretty nice march. I'd, I'd be pretty happy with a 3,600% return in a month. I'll take that. And of course, we all know that stock prices plunged. I don't know whether they've closed that position, by the way. If they kept it open, they're probably sitting on meaningful losses again as the market's recovered. But in any case, 3,600% gain is nothing to sneeze at. Are they right? Are we wrong? Well, here's the thing, right? What I was going to ask is, you know, what were the returns? Over, you know, if you had invested in that strategy for 10 years, what were the, actually the average returns is what matters, right? So, I mean, maybe the returns were really great in uh, March, uh, I don't know. Maybe they're great always, but it, you know, it's unlikely that an investment strategy where you're buying puts, which is basically buying, uh, which is basically like paying premium, and it's like paying insurance premium uh, for the calamity to strike, right? It means you keep paying, you keep paying, you keep paying, and then when the calamity strikes, you get to cash in if you do cash in. But if you don't cash in, and all calamity doesn't strike for all that time, you're basically paying. So it's a drag on the investor returns on the other. Um, you know, like. So I don't know, uh, you know, uh, Taleb's books are great, fantastic. He's a great thinker. Uh, I don't know the returns of otherwise to make a comment on, you know, is is there something in that particular strategy? I've done a little bit of hedging in the past on my own. Uh, I actually tend to do no hedging now, um, uh, right now, because it's really hedging is two things. It's one is short-term guessing. You are making the short-term guess. Everybody else in the market is also making the short-term guesses, so you're paying premiums for that. And, and then you have to really be right for the guesses to work out. Now, you could always say just like insurance, you're happy to pay the insurance premium because this is just protection, um, uh, you know, just like we pay insurance premium for um, uh, calamity, you know, like an accident or a car accident or stuff like that. Uh, some people think about it that way. In my view, the best, you know, like I think a combination of a little bit of a cash, you know, having a little bit of cash in a portfolio, every portfolio would have some degree of cash. That's insurance ability to buy stuff in at discounts. Um, if you have a steady flow of cash coming in that you can invest, uh, that's an insurance in itself. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm not against insurance uh, 
type of approaches, but mm. it's just hard to justify from a return perspective whether or not they substantially help your return. They might smooth your returns, but they, you know, for, for long periods of time, they can actually be a drag on your returns because you know, you're buying these puts, you're buying these puts, and you're basically they're expiring worthless. And then all of a sudden, and then the, the final thing I'll mention is March. This sort of thing now is the puts paid really well because VIX, which is the volatility index, jumped to values higher than to a seen during GFC. So VIX was actually right. more than 100, right? I don't know how frequently that happens, but the only reason it would have gone up that much, uh, the insurance premiums would have you know, delivered or the put premiums the put would have delivered that kind of return is VIX went up. Right, yeah. so you could have a normal fifteen percent drop or twenty percent drop in the market, and VIX would not go up that much, and then your put premiums would actually not pay that much. Right, so special circumstances here have helped pay for, um, you know, have helped that returns. Um, so you know, yeah, it's again, I think it's an individual strategy thing. I don't do it. I should do a little bit of it in the past, but I really don't do it. I just have some cash on the side that I can use. Yep, I'll, I'll add to that only briefly. I, like, I think you're right, mate. The long-term returns matter and, and the returns and the ability of the individual fund manager matters far more than the March result, right? The March result is the equivalent of, let you know, it, it's insurance, as you say. And the important thing about insurance is, yes, it comes due, but not only does it come due, you actually have to pay the premium every single month up to, during, and then post, if you keep that insurance valid, the, the, claim, uh, the claim event, right? So this is a claim event. This is... The, this is the car crash, this is the house fire, this is the whatever, um, home and contents, burglary. This is the claim event. Now, it's like saying, like someone saying, hey, all I did was, you know, guess what? Guess how much money I made from insurance in, in March? I made a million dollars for insurance in March. Like, well, A, yeah, but your house burned down, firstly. So, you know, the fact you're getting a lot of money from insurance is only a half of the story. Um, yeah, you, you know, if you've got the house, the house burned down, so you're just replacing what's already burnt down. And think about that in terms of your portfolio. Um, the other thing, as you said, mate, is the, you know, if you've got a million dollar payout in insurance, if you've only paid 100 bucks in premiums, that's a pretty good deal. If you had to pay $100,000 a year in premiums, you better hope there's a fire every 10 years. Otherwise, you're actually worse off financially than you would be otherwise, right? So that's kind of the, you've already made those points, but I kind of want to draw the analogy with insurance as you, as you mentioned it, because it really struck home. One of the world's worst insurance products is funeral insurance, where you will pay a funeral insurer way more than the cost of a funeral way in advance of that funeral, where they're going to invest that money and make triple, quadruple, five times, 10 times the money you're investing, and they're going to have to pay back. So paying for funeral insurance is a terrible, terrible idea. If you just said, well, look, I put, I paid for insurance for my funeral, chance are you two taken to the cleaners financially. Other times you might say, well, I only paid, I don't know, $10,000 with the home insurance premiums and I got a million dollar claim for my house when it burned down. Okay, fine. But there's 99 other people there who pay $10,000 a year and never claimed. So they lost money, right? And it's really important that it's it's human nature to go 3,600% in March, man, I want some of that. But as you've said, it, it's not the one month payout that matters. It's the total premiums, the likelihood of payment. And frankly, let's say COVID didn't happen like it did, right? So I'm not saying we should change history, but no one invested in that fund because they expected COVID in February or March, 2020. If it, if it didn't happen, we could be another 10 years away from a meaningful market meltdown or five years or seven years. And again, that return feels much less. So very, very easy in hindsight to say, man, I wish I'd done that. But unless you foresaw the circumstances and the timing, you've got to be really careful about trying to use the Monday morning quarterback stuff um, to work out whether you could or should have invested in the past and whether you could or should invest in the future. All right, let's move on, mate. Question from Craig. 
Correct, and this is interesting, mate. Speaking of, I put this one deleberately here because it's speaking of Tulevan, one of Tulevan's books. He says, "Hi, Scott. Near my home in WA, we have a lake that has black swans. Some years ago, for a nice day out, I took my three young nephews out to feed the swans. To my horror, I discovered that swans are not ducks. If you have food in your hand, they are much larger, incredibly aggressive, and rather terrifying creatures. I have tried to avoid black swans ever since." Now, if you're a Taleb reader or you understand the concept, you'll know where Craig's going next. Lately, I felt a black swan of a different kind has come to scar. Uh, he says scar me. I don't really mean scar or scare, but either way, probably the same. Uh, different has come to scar me. Coronavirus. And with a heavy heart, I came to the decision to sell my travel stocks, Webjet and corporate travel, at a big loss. Ouch. I noted with interest this week that Mr. Buffett has sold his airline stocks, which is an interesting topic for the podcast in itself. And we did that on Friday. But what interests me more is that he looks like it is a net seller of stocks rather than a buyer of stocks at the moment. Interested in your thoughts? Love the podcast and fool on. That's from Craig. Mate, I like that because, again, Swing of Taleb was a black, a black swan, which he gave a name to. We've talked about this last week. I think we talked about the idea of the black swan. Um, this is kind of, you know, this is the black swan event. And, and to Craig's point, he's feeling a bit scared or scarred or both, and I wouldn't blame him for... The March Falls, uh, and I really, really actually quite like the way he told the story with the analogy of the swans that aren't really like ducks at all, but they are aggressive and big and scary. Um, that, that is exactly how black swan events kind of feel. But I don't know if you have any particular thoughts about this. He asked specifically about kind of travel and Buffett and, and, and that he's a net seller. Anything in that question or comment that you want to kind of draw our attention to? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll say uh, Craig made that is fantastic. I love the analogy. I love how you weaved that story in. Uh, it is so cool. It is lovely. It's very foolish, actually. Very, very foolish. It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a style. I wish actually I wrote those lines. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I love it. Uh, it, it, it immediately you know, touched me. Um, look, I think it's a great question, right? So a couple of things I'll say. Um, so maybe I'll start from the bottom with, with Buffett selling his airline stocks. I, I think Buffett selling his airline stocks in many ways does not surprise me. What actually surprised me, and I've mentioned this before in, you know, in, like, so this is not, I'm not making fact stuff after the fact, like, you know, many of you have talked about Buffett as an investor. I've, I've been critical of Buffett, the investor, and, you know, and I'm trying to separate Buffett, the investor, from Buffett, the, the businessman. I think he's a fantastic businessman. I don't know whether he's, in the current, or for even the past decade or so, he has been a good investor. I have doubts for that. I know this sounds, you know, who am I to talk about that? But, you know, everybody has an opinion. I have an opinion. Um, and, and that's about it. And I could be wrong. But, you know, so far his returns have been not as great as, you know, his, his loss to the S&P. Uh, still good returns, but, you know, like, but not, you know, you could have done better with just being invested in the S&P 500. Um, and I think I've commented about Buffett's investment in airlines. And, well, there's one view that you know you change the changing times. I mean, who? I mean, Buffett himself has had so many analogies about you know Kitty Hawk and things like that, and you'd shoot Kitty Hawk and, and stuff like that. Like, I mean, he's himself said, "Don't invest in airlines. They're poor. They make poor investments." He just went and bought a bunch of different airlines, and you know, and some of them are good airlines, but hey, the airlines, right? It, couldn't you really find anything else? I think that that to me shows something was lacking. And I don't buy this, you know, they're not big things. Enough. There are so many big companies you could buy. So it, I think it's also, uh, I don't want to make this a buffet, but, you know, there's this circle of competency thing. And so I don't want to learn. Either you don't learn. If you, if you can't learn, then you just hire people to do that, right? Give them some money. 
not doing anything and just saying I'm going to be stuck with, you know, the old economy, 19th century style investing and style businesses is basically a pathway to mediocre returns, right? And so that's what has happened in Buffett's case. I give Buffett credit that he realized uh, that airlines are toast and that travel is not going to be the same. And therefore he sold, um, I don't know what she did. I mean, I think his problem is that a lot of the stuff that he looks at, a lot of those things, are toast in many ways, right? When I said toast, I don't mean that they're going to be dead, but I mean, like, he might be interested in buying such shares in Disney as an example, right? But Disney's like 60% of his operating uh, earnings come from parks. Well, they are pretty much like airlines right now, right? So, I mean, so, uh, and the market hasn't even marked down Disney significantly because, you know, it, this, it's giving it credit for his brand, right? Mm. But, I mean, a lot of, you know, Disney has cruises, Disney has parks, Disney has like movies. Well, all of those things are impacted uh, pretty much like airlines, right? Okay, it's a better business than airlines, infinitely better business than airlines, but still. So that's what I think is, so him not buying stocks, I think is ne- not does not necessarily, it basically means that he's not finding stuff. But again, like, I mean, he's the same guy who bought airlines. So, I mean, do you really want to weigh that? I don't want to, I actually ignore, I find his commentary about, economics and uh, some general thoughts more useful. Um, his lectures are always very interesting, but I don't read too much into his stock picks because, and I'm not saying that I'm a better stock picker or anything. I just think that the type of inv- investing which has been really successful over the, let's say, the last two decades, he has not, he has passed on most of them. So that's that's my viewpoint about that. Now, that, now circling back to this particular stock, so you know, WebJet is a, it has been, or what is a recommendation that we have had in Extreme Opportunities. Um, WebJet and both corporate travel are recommendation also on, on shared advisors. I believe they're all on hold. Um, right. So uh, uh, what do I think? Like, I mean, here's, here's, here's the problem. I, I think hold basically means, well, if you own the shares, you don't sell it. But we, uh, you know, what we are saying is don't buy more, which basically means at this point in time, um, it is really hard to know how these stocks are going to do, but the market has also priced them fairly, fairly cheaply if you think about historical levels, right? Now, of course, WebJet has been diluted um, with equity raising. Corporate travel actually hasn't been diluted. This, you know, and there was a mm-hmm. news bit out today about you know they've, they've reworked their covenants, so the covenants are going to be a problem. They've got some cash and they've got a credit line that they can tap into. They're doing a fine dance, but if they get away without diluting, I, I think they'll be in a much better position because just the dilution is fundamentally a problem because what basically happens is the future earnings are going to be divided by however many new shares you print, right? And you're going to be printing shares at a low share price, which you have to print a lot of shares. So if corporate travel gets away without printing new shares, I, I think that's actually a good outcome for corporate travel. I just mentioned that today. In, you know, I, I would give the CEO credit for actually making the dance happen if it happens. You know, it's, it's, it's a touch and go in my view because you know, you've only got $30 million in cash. You've got $200 million of debt that you can tap into as debt, right? And things, you know, again, it's a, it's a touch and go, but I think much better place than WebJet um, in my view. I mean, but, we will see. I think, again, the travel, problem with travel is just very simple. There's no travel really mm. happening. Maybe you know, domestic travel is going to open. It's going to open in some shape and form. That's going to result in some income for these companies. But these, you know, these companies are in a difficult spot just because of what has happened. Right. Uh, so 
it's not the most attractive place to be. I would be very honest about it. Um, you know, in uh, that's my view on it. And the only reason, please, we have not issued sell is it is. So I'll, I'll just make. I'll just. I'll try to. Be, I don't be rambling for a while. But here's the thing, right? Look at last year's earnings, so 2019 earnings for say Webjet, and now assume that that's the same type of earnings. So, you know, everybody kind of agrees that they are not going to. Nobody, airlines or whoever we are talking about in the travel industry is going to get back to this level of earnings for the next few years. Let's say three to five years, right? So now you think back, you go to, you know, the three to five years, think about five years and say, okay, well, you get back to 2019 earnings in, in five years time. Uh, what is the multiple you're paying currently? And what do you think the business is going to look like at that time? So that's, it's a really hard thing to do. But, you know, on balance, it seems like it could be cheap, but... Mm. Uh, you know, could be at least worthwhile, could be market beating. Is that that could be, should be, maybe is there in my <laughs> view. Um, and, you know, let me, that's, you know, so in, in terms of our process, yeah, we have thought about, you know, did think about cutting uh, web, web at one point, but, you know, a couple of other things. Uh, they've got uh, a big private equity mob now as a substantial shareholder. That puts a kind of a bit of a floor because, you know, there's a private equity takeout possibility, which the market will notice. Um, there is that, you know, earnings bounce back possible. Nobody really, again, knows how quickly things will bounce back, but it could bounce mm. back. Uh, you go back, you go out five years and that, you know, is a, you know, and before this, the business was fundamentally actually good, um, right? So, so that those are the considerations, yeah, but not the best place. And if anybody has sold their shares, like, look, I, I think that's fine if that's what you need. And if you find better places for your capital, like, I mean, the way I think about capital allocation is if you own a bunch of shares um, and some of those things are lower conviction, like hold is lower conviction, and you have found something that you want to invest in today, well, I mean, you know, you won't. I would be okay selling from my lower conviction stocks to put into my higher conviction stocks now. I'm not a big fan of, you know, rotating money because you need to make two decisions. One of the selling decision and the, and the buying decision both need to be correct. Yeah. But if you're really inclined and you have no new money, well, that's what you sell. Um, so, so if you have no new money, oh, that's what you do. Uh, so that's, that's my view. Like, you know, it sounds, doesn't sound definitive, but I don't know who can give definite. I'm, I'm sure Scott wouldn't give a definitive answer to anything because, you know, it's really hard to be definitive, right? I mean, no, I'm just yeah. being honest. You just can't be definitive. That's what I think. I think that's right, mate. I think look, you've covered that nicely. I'll talk about just the last part of the point or last part of the comment about Buffett being a net seller or a net buyer. I kind of talked about this a little bit on Friday from a different perspective, but it basically, I think it's the wrong lens. I think, you know, if Buffett got $137 billion to invest, if you want to invest, he could have been a net buyer or a net seller depending on how much money he put in. He sold the airlines, to contrary of your point, Doc, which actually is not because he had a better place for money, but just because he didn't think it was going to be a, a net positive return. So he just didn't want to own the socks. There was no sense that he wanted to have more cash on hand and so he was a net seller because there was no value across the market or because you know he's strategically building a cash reserve. He's got $137 billion. Trust me, he doesn't need more cash. Um, so this, you know, I think we should separate out the net buy and net seller thing. Also, too, worth saying that you know the big bets that that and that was one of his big bets that he got wrong. The Ted and Todd who were managing cash for him didn't get extra money as a result. So realistically, Buffett's taking out a big bet, had no other big bet to make. Again, it doesn't reflect the fact that across the portfolio, you didn't give the money to, the, to Ted and Todd, who then you know chose to have it in cash rather than investing it. Like this was a straight out, got you know sold the position because it was worth selling. We'll invest the cash when it's worth investing. Uh, has said he will spend thirty or forty billion dollars a pop to buy businesses if they come up. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we should be looking at. at you made comments before about Buffett's market timing around distressed assets and stuff, Doc. But in this context, I think we both agree this wasn't market timing at all. This was literally just. 
worth selling because it was worth selling. When there's something worth buying, he'll buy it. Uh, we shouldn't look at the he's, he's not managing a net stocks position or net exposure position in any conscious and deliberate way. Fair to say. Yeah, I think the, I think the selling decision. I give him credit for the selling. I mean, you know, you sell the stuff because he thinks it's not going to be market beating, so that makes sense. Very good. Completely. All right, I'm going to try and keep our questions a bit faster if we can as we get through. We've got a massive, massive backlog, so let's do what we can. Um, all right, we got answered a question about a rainy day account last week. So, but a question from Neil, and we'll try and keep it reasonably brief. Neil says, "Hey, fools! Thanks for an always illuminating and entertaining podcast." He says, quick backstory, I'm 41, I rent, have a good household income, but due to some suboptimal, he says, i.e. incredibly fun financial planning in the past, I racked up a stack of debt. Sounds like he's had a good time, but uh, now he's got to pay the piper. However, I've buckled down in recent times. I'm now finally debt-free. Mate, that is a spectacular success. Well done and congratulations. So looking to make a belated start on the investment front. He says, I know the next foolish, capital F foolish step is to build up a rainy day fund, and it is. He says, based on rent and other outgoings, I reckon about 25 or 30 grand would work. The question is where to put it. Obviously, you can't tell me that specifically, but in a general sense, what do you think holding it about holding it in a raise account? My logic is there's very little upside in savings accounts now that there's crazy interest rates. But with raise, you can get exposure to the market at a decent, hopefully, entry level with access to the funds if you need them at any time. I can't see there would any, be any huge downside to this. I'm perfectly prepared to watch my money fluctuate. I have faith in the market to recover post-COVID. Would it in general be a useful idea to spend the next, say, six months putting 5K a month in a raise to build that accessible savings fund before plunging a toe into the investing proper? Or should a rainy day fund be something even safer just in case of some sort of disaster? We'd love to know your thoughts. Thanks, Neil. All right, Neil's question, mate. Rainy day fund, raise account or somewhere else? Um, so, I, I, look, so rainy day fund, I think, is a great idea. Uh, you should have a rainy day fund, which is a buffer. Once you've built a buffer, so I, I was not, I'm not intimately familiar with how raises rainy day fund actually or raises account works in terms of savings. Does it play any substantial interest versus you know keeping a term deposit? If it does not, then why you know maybe find a term deposit where you can keep the cash if you want to keep the cash because you know ideally people would keep some cash along you know in an offset account if they've got a mortgage right but if you're not got a mortgage which is the situation then you'd maybe put in a term deposit or something like that uh would be my guess um in and then once you've got your rainy day fund set up then you'd you'd put some money into investing and then a raise or raise like platform is is a perfectly good place to start. Um, note that these platforms would allow you to invest in only certain types of ETFs and therefore it limits your, uh, your investment space. Um, you know, if you are interested in individual stocks, then, um, you know, you would, you'd actually ideally want to open a brokerage account and, uh, you know, which, which you could do with your bank right. or any other brokerage. And then you could basically invest there um, over a period of time. So that's what I would do. I, you know, I basically encourage anybody who's looking to invest over, over a you know, period of 20 years or so, I know you should have a brokerage account, really. Um, a raise is a good arrangement. A raise and Comsec are good arrangements, good interim arrangements, but I don't they solve sort of all of the investment needs because they're not really providing you access to individual stocks. Nice. Um, Neil, I raise is generally doc, uh, ETF based investing. Uh, and so the, he's basically taking a market exposure with his rainy day fund. I think it's a bad idea, Neil, I have to say. Now, maybe of that 25 or 30 grand, you don't need the whole lot in a purely rainy day fund. So maybe you want to start using some of that to invest. But yeah, mate, the, this is rainy day cash. This is a disaster emergency cash. This is 
car breaks down, needs to be replaced. This is fridge goes on the blink. This is emergency trip overseas for something. I'm not obviously at the moment, but in general, um, you want to absolutely want to have that money as safe as houses. Um, that's money in the bank, high return, government guarantee, high interest deposit account. When I say high return, it's a terrible return, but higher than a transaction account. It is painful to watch it earn almost nothing, but frankly, again, the market fell 40-ish percent in March. If you'd have had to at that point, be put out of work, for example, and your 30 grand was all of a sudden now worth 18, and you had to make that last for the next six months while you got a job, uh, you'd be pretty sorry you didn't have it in cash and have the 30 grand ready to tap. So um, I am very, very firm on this one. I can't give specific advice to you particularly, Neil, but to anyone else and everyone else listening, cash is cash is cash is king, and you want that in a rainy day fund in a high-ish interest account that can't be touched by the ravages of market fluctuations. Love that you're prepared for volatility. That's great when you're investing in cash, get ready to do that as soon as you get going. But you know, Buffett's line about having, you know, risking what you have and need, what you don't have and don't need is really important here. Don't risk your rainy day fund. It is there for emergencies. You don't want to have it fluctuate and not have the amount of money you need when you need it. All right, Doc, next question is from Craig. Craig, <laughs> Craig's gone full bore on the, on the puns, mate, so bear with us. He says, G'day, Motley Fools. Firstly, thank you, Share Advisors, for the extreme opportunity to be part of your hidden gem of a podcast. He says, Hopefully, that piece of obligatory praise for you guys, combined with subliminal advertising of some Motley Fool services aimed at your listeners, will be enough to get my question answered. Craig, you know we're not like that. We wouldn't have answered your question about Share Advisor, extreme opportunities, and hidden gems just because you mentioned our services, Share Advisor, hidden gems, and extreme opportunities. So, uh, perish the thought. All right, he says, uh, I recently invested in the X20 ETF, which is the ASX 200 excluding the top 20, for diverse exposure to companies that are not banks and miners that I and most Australians have sufficient exposure to via our super. He says, I'm wondering what managers of ETFs generally do in regard to capital raisings, particularly during this period when many small to medium ASX listed companies are raising capital. I'm guessing actively managed ETFs have the freedom to use their judgment However, I'm not sure about passively managed ETFs. Do they generally participate, even if only to avoid dilution? And if so, how do they fund the exercising of those rights? If they choose not to exercise their rights, I presume the holding is simply reweighted at the next scheduled period at a bracket potential capital loss. Uh, thanks for any insight you can provide. Full on Craig. Now, Craig also has given us a PS where he basically begs for a free subscription given the advertising he's done for us. Craig, don't call us. We'll call you. He does say even if we don't, he'll just listen to the podcast. So I'm going to I'm going to trust you on that one, Craig. Uh, mate, come on. EO is super cheap. Bye. Come on. Help Doc out here. He's worth it, surely. All right, mate. Uh, ETFs and capital raisings, mate. Talk to me. Yeah. So this is interesting. I don't definitely know the answer, but my assumption is that a, a index ETF actually does not participate in you know share placement plans, right? Um, because it would need to acquire cash, send the cash, then get the shares, and it'll it'll muck up the weightings that you have on those. Because, you know, the index weight, you basically have based on the index weighting, right? It's going to muck up your index weighting if you do the yeah. FEE. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, you would re-weight, uh, again, at the warning whenever it's quarterly or, you know, uh, by, you know, uh, semi-annually, whatever is the re-weighting, whenever the re-weighting is probably quarterly for most of the indices. Um, so, so that's what you would do. Um, if I think if there are rights issues, they'll probably sell it and pocket it. You know, the rights can be sold, uh, and they'll pocket a profit. Would be my guess, and you know, mm. they'll just get booked somewhere as a uh, as a profit for them. 
because the, you know why wouldn't you do that otherwise it'll just lapse <laughs> uh, if the rights are tradable uh, for some fees I would think that's what happens but that's my guess I really mm. don't yeah I, I think I'd bet on that my guess being right but you know don't quote me I think look and it's really it's kind of immaterial at some level um, I'm pretty sure you're right Matt about the the reality but the, the, the actual actions they take. The reality is at the end of each rebalance period, either way, the, the new company that raises capital is going to be a, a set weighting of the ASX and they are going to buy and sell shares to re-weight accordingly anyway. Uh, so whether, frankly, whether they participate in the capital rising or not is, I don't say it's entirely material. I guess there are small changes in terms of relative share price at different points. You know, taking part in NAB's capital rising now versus re-weighting at the end of June, for example, may well see a slightly different share price, but proportionally and, and in any realistic sense. Really cool, worth you know, great intellectual question. Uh, no issue though, no impact for the ETF's valuation or frankly, it's, it's longer term position and decisions. The other thing is too, capital raises for the most part, I mean, they can be meaningfully dilutive like WebJets, as you're saying, mate, but the vast majority are a few percentage points of the, of the capital. It's kind of within the tracking area anyway. And, and you know, the, the fact that they won't have reweighted since the end of March and we're now May when the raising's happening, they're always going to be slightly out because they don't reweight daily. Um, but that's just the that's just the simple reality. So, your funny intellectual question to answer um, probably have not a lot of particular impact. Not not it's a bad question, just that it shouldn't impact how you think about those ETFs. All right, um, we got a second one question about that actually. So um, it was also from Steve. I won't read your question out, Steve, but thank you for asking the question. He asked exactly the same. He does say though, thanks for producing such an interesting podcast. I've listened to most of the episodes since inception and recommended it to a few friends. So thank you, Steve. Really appreciate that. Uh, mate, if you recommend it to a lot of friends, maybe I would have read your question, is all I'm saying. Oh, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, come on, a few friends? It's got to be more than that. Need our advice, surely. Okay, next one is from Siri. Siri says, hi, Scott and Doc. Recently, the Reserve Bank pumped $100 billion into the economy as quantitative easing, or in brackets, money printing. The value of the currency went down due to this extra money. By investing, we are trying to increase our wealth through compounding. My question is, how much of a damage did it cause to our wealth by money printing? And how many years did we go back? Love your show. Keep up the good work. Full on Siri. How bad are we hurt by money printing, mate? How bad they should say? Even grammatically yeah, correct. That's, 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 that's a great question. I, you know, it's, it's a funny one because... You know, the money was printed, yes, but if money wasn't printed, there was another reality to that too, right? So if money was not printed and the economy basically came to a standstill, there were lots of job losses and lots of businesses closing, productivity going down, you know, basically businesses taking and the, you know, the economy taking uh, several years of back step, um, would that have been any better than you know, what we currently have, right? So I think that there's the, there's the, the counter question to that. Um, effectively printing more money or more debt or whatever we think about is eventually has to be paid back in some form or the other. Basically, future generations have to pay for it, either that or it has to be more productivity somehow, you know, paying for um, what we do today. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, mm. intuitively, it seems to me that whatever has been done, whether it is, you know, the Reserve Bank's actions in terms of buying uh, debt and, you know, supporting bonds and things like that is is very important in terms of keeping credit markets open. It's more about confidence of keeping the credit markets and credit 
credit flowing. In other words, it's very easy for the banks and the credit flow to stop because, I, I mean, on any given day, if somebody you know says, I want X amount of money from the bank because I kept that much amount of money in the bank, mm-hmm. the bank might actually not be able to give it to you because the money is actually <laughs> floating around. It's not there. <laughs> it's uh-huh. there virtually because it's, it's always assumed that you know, you're not going to ask for all of it at one go. And not everyone is going to ask for it all of it at one go because if that happens, there is no money to give. Um, you know, that's classic run on banks sort of scenario. So I, I don't have a good answer for this. You know, maybe you have a different view, Captain. I am going to say that I think we need to be careful not to think, Siri, about just the action of the RBA in isolation, which is kind of your point, Doc. Um, the, you know, the alternative might have been, have we done nothing? How bad would the economy be impacted and how far would we go back? And it may well be we have to choose between two bad options, right? I don't think anyone loves quantitative easing. I think we love deep depressions or recessions even worse. And so it's kind of one of those things where you say, you know, would we be back, I don't know, one year with money printing or three years without it? Um, it's too it's too simple to just look at one particular action or inaction of government and say that one thing was right or wrong in isolation. It's got to be a case of... The, one of my favourite words, maybe it's a bit of a wanky word, is counterfactual. In other words, what would have happened if we'd done nothing? And I think that's the that's the key question. So what you've got to say, Siri, is what do the current policy settings mean in total for our economy versus what would have happened had we done nothing or not enough? Um, I think we know from the Great Depression, we know from the austerity countries during the GFC that doing nothing is far worse than doing what was done. It may not be perfect. And again, we could argue about how well we were set up going into this particular crisis. I would have some sympathy for anyone who had that conversation. Uh, but in and of itself, I think it's hard to it's hard to make a clear argument that it's necessarily bad. Now, in terms of how far we go back, remember, of course, the lower currency isn't necessarily bad. Like that's the really important thing here for us to remember. We're so tuned to this idea of high is good, low is bad. That when the dollar falls, we say, oh, the dollar's fallen, that's terrible. Or, hey, the dollar's up. Yeah, go go Australia. Our, our number is higher. You know, our, our score is higher. Um, that That's not, it's not even slightly true. Um, not that it's even necessarily completely false either, by the way, but Higher dollar means we have um, it's, we can spend more money overseas. So you know we can we can go overseas and get more US dollars for our Australian dollar, for example, which is kind of nice. Um, TVs and cars come into the country cheaper. That's kind of nice. But if you're an exporter, if you're a tourism or education operator, if you're a uh, an exporter of iron ore or wheat or wool, then a higher dollar actually hurts you. It makes your products less competitive. And so economically, you've got to consider both parts of that story, both the imports and the exports, to really work out what the impact is. There's also the flow of capital, for example, a whole lot of different things going on um, that you have to really think carefully about. So I wouldn't I wouldn't want to just say RBA action one and then dollar down two and say, you know, what's the impact or implication? I think we probably just say broadly the economic settings as a whole. I'm, I kind of figure at, at an economic level, I actually think a lower dollar is probably better for us over the medium term than a high dollar anyway, because if it stops us going overseas, well, maybe we travel more at home. If we stop buying imported goods and buy local goods, that's probably good. If our exports in you know, tourism, more, more people come to Australia, that's probably good. More iron ore and wool and wheat goes overseas, that's probably good. Um, you know, there are, there are drawbacks, absolutely. It's not universally positive, but I don't know. I kind of, part of me, and, and the RBA itself has tried to get the dollar down in different ways because of exactly that for a while. I don't know, if we're consumer goods are a little bit more expensive, but we send more stuff overseas, that's probably better for the economy writ large. That's why the dollar is supposed to float. I think it's a terrible thing. Doc? No, I think I have nothing to add. I think it's all covered. Let's keep going. Next question. Uh, I have opened a, this is from um, Sirat. Sirat says, I've opened a Comsec account, which shows me how many buyers and sellers there are for a particular stock. Is there a relevant measure for which way, oh, sorry, is this 
a relevant measure for which way the stock price is likely to go. E.g., more buyers means the price is likely to rise in the short term. I'll, gonna, I'll grab that one, Doc. If you've got any thoughts, feel free. Um, the easy answer to is no, because the number of buyers doesn't indicate how much they're prepared to pay. If I wanted to compile this to buyers for my house while I was selling it, and I had a 1,000 buyers who were offering me a one cent, and one buyer who was offering me a million, and there was one seller, um, the fact there was 1,001 buyers wouldn't be super relevant because when we say buyers, we're saying potential buyers at a given price. Now, maybe it stops the shares falling massively because if there's enough buyers at a three, five, seven, ten percent discount at the current price, eventually they'll step in and buy their shares at that price and maybe it slows the descent of a, of a falling share price. So possibly, um, similarly, sellers on the other side, maybe it stops the, you know, the, a fast rise. But generally speaking, no, the number of them is much less relevant because it depends how much they're prepared to offer or not. The other thing is too, at any one point in time, particularly for a large company, the number of current buyers and sellers with orders that are actively in the market, that's what we're seeing. So if I think I want to buy Woolies tomorrow or today, um, I don't have to have my order in the system until I actually place the order, right? That's just the limit orders you're seeing. So you're not seeing who else is around. You're also not necessarily seeing as a proportion of total daily volume, the current number of buyers or sellers for Woolies shares might be, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 25% of the total day's volume. So even if it was indicative, it'd only be indicative for a very short amount of time until more buyers and sellers turned up. Anything on that, Doc? I know. Nothing to add. Beautiful. There is another question from Surat asking about how we pick stocks. I'm going to keep that one as a general conversation for maybe next week. Maybe we might do a, do a quick section on how we pick stocks generally, but interesting question about how do we pick stocks and what, what approach do we take. Um, I will say the question does talk about, uh, I read the two common methods of fundamental analysis and technical analysis. What are your views on these approaches? Fundamentals is based on the business itself. Technical is based on the movements of share prices. Uh, we are dyed in the wool fundamental guys. Now, fundamental doesn't mean value. Doc's a high growth investor using fundamental application. Um, I'm kind of, you know, value growthy, kind of somewhere in that range, uh, also using fundamental. So fundamental doesn't mean, you know, boring value. It just means we use the business itself, not movement of the share price to pick stocks. Fair to say, Doc? Absolutely, 100%. Right, we're cracking through our mail. Let's keep, let's keep doing our best to get as fast as we can. Question from Dave. Hi, Fools. Thank you for us, us answering my question about Afterpay on last week's podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Dave. My question today is about growth stocks inside the top 50 companies on the ASX. Is there such a thing? I know there are more opportunities in the small to medium-sized markets to find a true growth stock, but at times like these, the risk seems magnified. I've had a bit of a look and have come up with one that might fit aristocrat leisure. Whilst it is being hit hard by COVID-19 on its land sales, it has a billion dollars in working cash flow. It is reinvesting earnings about 11% and is seeing its online gaming footprint increase by 24%. I see a lot of upside in Aristocrat in all of the future, or in the future, and it has a track record of innovation and good management. Would this be considered a blue chip growth stock? And he finishes hashtag full on, hashtag triple M, hashtag, yep, you know it, Get Doc on Insta. All right, I'll leave you. Uh, I'll leave you alone on that hashtag, mate. But let's go with the other stuff. Can you find good growth? Do you find good growth companies inside the ASX fifty? Um, long and short, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> most of the ASX top fifty is old, tired, 
very traditional type capital heavy businesses. Those are not the type of businesses I like to invest in. Um, and you know, there's some semblance of growth there. What typically happens is they get pri- they get priced at as if they're like you know priced in gold. So mm. it's I think the scarcity value pushes prices up of the good businesses. And, uh, you know, it just appears to me that, you know, most of ASX top 50, you know, is, yeah, it's, it's a no go for me. Uh, that, that said, I haven't looked at aristocrat that closely, so I don't have any comments on aristocrat, but yeah, my, my general comment is mm. um, not much to look there. Beautiful. I tend, well, it depends what you want, right? Like there are, there are companies inside the 50 that are probably do decent ish growth. Aristocrat may well be one of those, but even the reinvesting earnings at 11% is good. Not great, um, at least in terms of the absolute growth opportunities you can find. Now, the ASX 50 probably have less risk as well, Doc, so there probably is some risk-reward trade-off there, but uh, a well-chosen portfolio of small to mid-high growth companies, yes, there is more risk. You're absolutely right about that. Um, when, when you ask Dave, you know, is there more risk or serious? Yeah, absolutely. The I would say on Doc's behalf, we tend to solve that through diversification and through a broad portfolio approach of a number of different companies. So on a company-by-company level, is there more risk? Yes, absolutely. And a portfolio, if you if you chose a great, you know, well chosen, well researched, like Doc and Kevin do at EO, group of twenty of those, if four go broke, well, I don't think they will, but if they do, okay, fine. If the rest do well to very very well, which they probably will, um, then net net your portfolio is going to do really well. So we would never ever say buy a small to mid growth stock and see if you can make your money on it. We'd say buy a lot of them, uh, choose them well, um, use Doc's research if it's something you're interested in. I think I would hardly recommend that service, but even if you don't, that's fine. Um, but yeah, buy a portfolio of them and, and back the law of averages rather than trying to pick the one or two winners and make money there. I've just spoken on your behalf. Like anything you'd add up to that? Nothing. We are firing through this question from Chris. Hey guys, love your straight talking, no BS podcasts and your subscriber services. Thank you, Chris. I'd be interested here to know your thoughts about the similarities of what is occurring with government debt now and what occurred in the 70s with the great spike in inflation. Keep up the great work. Cheers, Chris. I'm going to assume you don't want to necessarily talk about this, but do you have any particular thoughts? Um, like I don't have, the only thing I'll quickly say is that, yes, inflation is the big risk in my view, that yeah. with all this money being pumped into the system, you know, it's like a bit of a kitchen sink type of solution and every, you know, it's not just here, but, you know, everywhere there's been this kitchen sink solution, just throw everything at this problem. Yeah. And that does have the risk of causing inflation. But I, yeah, I don't know, as we discussed, I mean, if you, the risk of not doing anything or doing less is so great right. that um, I can't fault the, the policy action. That's my view. Nice. Um, Chris, uh, basically the, the inflation of the 70s was largely oil shock related, um, not entirely, and certainly it lasted through to the 80s. Um, combination of economies are funny, right? So what we learned since the 70s and 80s is that, well, we probably already should have known it, and I, I would argue actually that Buffett and his ilk actually kind of got behavioural investing before behavioural finance became a thing because they kind of, that was why he's always invested, the greedy and fearful, fearful and greedy thing. Most people, though, had this classical view of economics that said that, you know, it, it, it removed the, the confidence component or the, or the expectations component from economics, right? So the 70s and, and what happened is um, Paul Volcker had to break effectively inflation by being draconian when it came to interest rates because we'd all expected prices would go up, so they went up. So we expected they'd go up, so they went up. 
And these things can be runaway trains. And to Doc's point, that's why there is absolutely, to your point, Chris, and Doc's response, that's why there is risk right now. Because at some point, if you all start believing that lower rates mean higher prices, then that starts to filter through and it goes on and on and on and goes from there. The Labor and uh, unions, Labor government and unions in the 80s broke that in Australia by largely having that wages accord that said, hey guys, you've got to stop using inflation as a reason to ask for more wages because higher wages leads to more inflation and the whole thing gets out of control and gets to be a runaway train. So it is that feedback loop, Chris, you mentioned, that's super important. So is it government debt? Potentially, yeah. Uh, potentially it's interest rates. I actually worry about interest rates and government debt, frankly, when it comes to inflation. I don't think government debt in and of itself creates it. In fact, it's so large now that it actually may be a net detractor. As that debt's paid off, it actually may be a contracting force on the economy as it's paid off or paid down. So I'm not too worried about debt's impact on inflation. I am a little bit worried about the economic feedback loop that may cause inflation. I've got to say, I think it's the least of our worries right now. Um, and we have the tools to stop it if we need to. I'd rather, if we get inflation, we have, that's a great problem to have relative to where we are now. It'll be a problem, absolutely, we need to deal with it. I'm pretty confident that central banks have their hands on the tiller. I am a little bit worried about politicians, frankly, not of either stripe or even of any nationality, just because the short-termism, I've said many, many times, the RBA had to cut harder and faster than it should have because fiscal policy was on the blink. Um, the RBA saw a disaster while the federal government was, um, was trying to get the budget back in balance, in other words, being a contracting force. If you're, if you're reducing deficits, you're actually contracting the economy year on year because you're sucking money out while the RBA is pumping money in I think that was the problem. And I think, again, regardless of your particular political stripe or preference or the government in, in power at the time, I'm not worried about central banks. I am worried about governments maybe not doing the right things for either lack of conviction, different views, or frankly, just base politics. So if I have any worry, it's, it's, it's that one rather than, rather than debt and rather than inflation from central banks necessarily directly. Anyone on that, Doc? Nope. We're on fire. Question from Hamish. G'day, Scott and Doc. I have a question about dollar cost averaging. I'm still, mate, I've got to come up with a better tip. Between the two of us and our listeners, here you go, email us. Send us a, a tweet, send us a, a message on, on Facebook. What can we, dollar cost averaging, it doesn't really mean anything, right? Dollar cost averaging, dollar cost, dollar averaging, cost averaging, whatever. We know what it means. It means investing regularly in small amounts. <laughs> Back to Hamish's question. I've been, I've been an aggressive saver since I started working at 15. Good man. I'm now a 22-year-old uni student and have a reasonable amount of cash savings. Hamish, you have my ever-present envy. Mate, I wish I was you. In response to the recent downturn, I incrementally increased the majority of my cash into various ETFs. I invested, sorry. The majority of my cash into various ETFs throughout March. I still have around 30 grand cash in addition to a six-month emergency fund left. How good's that? What is the smartest strategy to deploy this? Should I dollar cost average and deploy this money in even portions every month? on top of my regular contributions, or in continue to invest large chunks as the market declines or advances by a predetermined amount. More generally, how should you go about deploying any large windfalls of cash into the market? Does your strategy change depending on market volatility? Doc, over to you, mate. Hi, mate. Oh, this is a great question. So I keep a bit of cash in my brokerage account, and uh, I generally tend to be aggressive if the market goes down and otherwise I just invest basically when I have a good idea or something that I want to invest in, I just add cash to it. Or when I've added amount to my brokerage account, then I would just, so I just basically regularly invest into something that I like and, um, and I have some amount of cash, which I, you know, I normally have just 
as as I like having cash too. So it gives me the sense of control that if even the market has gone down, I'm doing something positive, which is buying stocks uh, and not just watching my investments go down. It's it's, it's a uh, over the, over the long term, this is a uh, not necessarily the best strategy because you know you, you overall being invested should give you better returns. If, uh, but you know it's again it's a, it's a mental thing about knowing who you are as an investor. So that's what I do. Um, in this, you know, in this case, like I would basically just invest at a pace that seems comfortable. Probably invest. I would invest faster than slower right now. Uh, last year, because the market is still down relative to recent highs, and eventually the market is going to cross this high at some point and be, hit higher highs. So, uh, the longer your one is waiting, I guess they're going to be paying. They they're going to lose some in return. So that's yeah. So in this particular instance, I would say. If there's cash, that's basically cash available for investment. I'll just invest it. Hmm. Nice. I um, I'm gonna say I normally would be fully invested. I don't keep cash deliberately. Um, so I, I would be fully invested. I think that you know I've said before the market goes up over time. So statistically, uh, mathematically, the longer you, you stay in cash, the less chance there is of actually beating the market or finding great investments because over time price will get away from you. So I have no I I had no specific decision to have excess cash at. The time when we had the downturn, now I did have some cash um, for various reasons. Um, largely, actually, I, you know, it's an old plumber with a leaky tap. Um, I don't ask cash in my portfolio because I hadn't got around to investing it, and, and frankly, because a lot of our conversations are about individual stocks, and so our trading rules are pretty restrictive. Um, so I did put some money to work in March, not, but I hadn't held back for that reason. I think that's how I nuanced this this answer. If when I saw, and now I've said many times in this podcast and, I, and other forums. When the market is down a third off from its previous high, and given the fact market always goes back or has always gone back to its previous highs, I think it's a no-brainer to invest that money. Now, maybe you get a better chance, maybe you don't. But again, on a dollar cost averaging you kind of way, if I said to you, here's a 70 cent dollar, do you want it? And you said, no, I want to wait and see if I get a 60 cent one in a month's time. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But looking the gift horse in the mouth, I think, is, is a dangerous approach. So um, if I had surplus cash, I did have a little bit, not, not a lot proportionally to my portfolio, but I had the surplus cash. I definitely put that to work. So I would say when you see a big downturn from a high, I think that's almost always a great time to invest it. Not that it can't get worse, but you're, you're kind of, historically at least, you've always locked in a good game. So that's a pretty good starting point for mine. And I would encourage that. But I wouldn't be keeping cash aside. As to how you should do it from here, the market's up a little bit, but it's still down a good, was it 25% down, I think, Doc, on its all-time highs, still something like that. I'd be very comfortable to, to invest that money in a lump sum now as long as you know that it could fall further and you may have that buyer's remorse of, oh, I know I should have waited. Oh man, all that, I wish I would listen to Phillips, that kind of stuff. Um, but if you, have the, if you have the intentional fortitude and emotional maturity to be able to say, yeah, I'm okay with it, I can do it, then I'd say, go ahead and do it. Um, otherwise, absolutely no harm, by the way, in dollar cost averaging over time. If you want to say, I'll do, you know, a, a fixed amount over four, three, four, five, six months, by all means do that as well. There is no downside to it. I would, I would just... I would probably, as a general anyway, but certainly right now when the market's down from its highs, I would get the money into the market sooner rather than later, not with undue haste, but waiting, generally speaking, over time is a is a losing proposition. Again, the market's going to crash 25% next week for all we know, and if you invested today, you'll feel like a deal and you'll blame me, fair enough. Um, but I feel like I'm, I'm being offered right now a, you know, a $0.70 cent dollar. Um, it, it's, it feels like a pretty good time to be putting excess cash to work. Any thoughts on my response, mate, before we move on? No, I think that's perfect. You, I also just love the podcast, Hamish. So thank you, Hamish. Question from Mitch, mate. Hey, Scott and Doc, you guys are legends, and I'm loving listening to the podcast. I look forward to it each week. 
I wanted to get your opinion on some ETFs. I'm in a situation where I have some money to invest, but essentially need to invest in a combination of ETFs below with some issues. So you mentioned VAS, which is the Vanguard Australian Share Fund, VGS, which is the Vanguard Global X Australia, NDQ, the NASDAQ 100, the Asia, which is the Asian Tech Tigers ETF. Am I hearing that one right, Doc? Yeah. Um, he says, do you guys have any other listed ETFs that you prefer to the above? Now, when he talks about the VAS, it looks like it might be trading at a good discount between banks and miners uh, for the, uh, the two America or two global ones, VGS and NASDAQ, exchange rate not great. And with the Asia ETF, doesn't appear to be trading at a discount since the beginning of, he was actually finished that sentence, but I'll say it was February or March, uh, given the falls in global markets. He's looking for a, a discount to previous highs. I'm going to go first, Doc, and say, I don't think, Mitch, you should be looking for previous highs as an indicator of what happens next. We all want a bargain. Of course we do. Um, but one of those ETFs may well go from a reasonably not high yet to an even higher at some point in the future. Um, yeah, if you get a discount like the overall market is now, by all means, take it. Um, but if you had an opportunity to buy the, the, you know, the ASX at a cheaper price, you know, waiting for a, a dip that didn't come might have been very expensive as it continued to grow higher. I've used the example before. We can use billion on Amazon. I own Apple. You own. You own Amazon as well. Or you have. Um, you know, waiting for it to fall back below a thousand on the way to two thousand four hundred for Amazon would have been a really expensive mistake. Don't just buy or not buy because shares are lower or higher than they have been in the past. Buy because the current price represents an attractive price relative to the future. And when I say stocks, I also mean some ETFs. If you think the Nasdaq ETF, as I do, is going to deliver really good compound returns over time from wherever the price currently is, and that's not, you know, if it was 10 times the price, I might disagree. But, you know, I think, I think Nasdaq ETF is, is a great way to get compound returns and the growth will probably make valuation less important, for example. Um, we talked about the exchange rate a lot, Doc. I don't want to necessarily dwell on that. We've talked about that. I think we've made it pretty clear. I'm a little uncertain you're all you know, full in on, on exchange rate. Of those ETFs, do you want to tell us which one's your favourite and also whether you have any others that Mitch should consider? Yeah, so, I mean, among all of them, I, I like the NASDAQ uh, 100. I like the Asia. I think those are the more growthier ones. I tend to not worry about exchange rate at all, largely because I think if you're dollar cost averaging over a period of time, the exchange rate would also dollar cost average over a period of time. So, the, you know, exchange rate is a bogey that's not worth thinking about, um, in my view. Yeah, I like the NDQ, and, uh, which is the NASDAQ 100, and the Asia... Uh, ETF, it's higher risk, uh, largely because it gives you Asian tech exposure. Um, I'm not a big fan of uh, the ASX 300 ETFs, largely because they give you basically a lot of bank and miner exposure. Um, not the best, you know, they're going to have, uh, actually miners might do okay, but the banks are not, banks are going to have a hard time uh, in, in the near future. And, you know, they're already diluting shareholders and cutting dividends and things like that. So, yeah, that's that's my view. In terms of other ETFs, they're not list, like they're not index ETFs, but you know, in your service, for example, you have an ETF called Moat, which is the Morningstar's uh, you know wide moat ETF. That's an interesting ETF to look at if somebody's looking at uh, ETF. There are other sector specific ETFs that you can look at um, if somebody's interested in in that. So there are a bunch of other things that one can can look at, um, but these are pretty good, as in like they're you know, they're standard. Um, index specific ones. Nice, thank you mate. I like that's a perfect example. I would be happy to invest in any of those ETFs. Um, I probably would go for the globals over the Australian. Um, I don't have a particular preference, although I certainly, I own 
the Vanguard Global VGS on our own NASDAQ NDQ. Um, so you expect me to say I think they're worth investing in. I think you're right. I think that the, the, the current, where, where we agree very clearly on the currency is, and for the previous question, if you dollar cost average, it takes a whole lot of that grief out of the way, both in terms of share prices and currency. Um, and so I, I completely agree. I think that's, if you're, if you're going to, well, you can, you can afford to pay much less heed to currency as long as you continue to dollar cost average. So if you think about that, um, I, you know, I don't think you should exclude, I mean, you don't want to not invest in Apple or Amazon or Facebook or Netflix or Google or et cetera, et cetera, all of those companies that make up the NASDAQ, for example, you don't want to avoid you know, investing in those for large stretches because you're worried about currency. There's every chance the currency goes nowhere and those companies keep going higher, certainly in terms of fundamental operating performance and probably share price. Um, you don't want to miss that out. But I think to Doc's point, particularly the, the way to avoid that isn't to try and guess the currency, it's the dollar cost average. Now, if we get a dollar ten to the US dollar at some point, I will be selling meaningful amounts of my Australian stocks and buying US stocks just because you do you do often get just free kicks. Dollar ten currency was a massive free kick. I, I, I banged on about it ages at the time, trying to keep convince people to do it. Um, I'll do it again when we get there. So there are times when you want to up the ante on that. In the meantime, dollar cost averaging is a great solution. Tom asks the next question. He says, hi Scott, love the podcast. I have a question for the mailbag. I have some savings I'm looking to invest in the stock market. I would ideally like to buy some US stocks. I have my eye on a few. However, due to the low value of the AUD to USD, I'm apprehensive. My other option would be to buy more units of NDQ, the NASDAQ ETF, which I currently own and have done well with, thanks to your advice and to Doc's recommendation. Hats off to you. Thank you, mate. What do you think would be the best thing to do? Cheers, Tom. I'm going to grab this one quickly too. You're welcome to dive in. But Tom, remember the NDQ ETF is effectively the same as buying US stocks directly currency-wise. It is moving absolutely the same way as those stocks do. If you're buying NASDAQ with what you think is Australian dollars, and you are, the currency exchange rate is already built into that price as if you were buying it directly on the US market. So there is no difference in the exchange rate impact of the ETF versus the stocks themselves. It's a non-starter. So don't buy or not buy either category because of the currency, buy the investment you think is the right one. If you're gonna invest in US-based stocks, the, whether you buy the ETF or the stocks themselves, zero difference currency-wise. So obviously the company composition is different, but zero difference currency-wise, buy the one you want to invest in, uh, ignore the currency when you're choosing between those two options. I nailed it, Doc? I think you nailed it perfectly. Thank you, mate. Question from, this, this is possibly, my favourite hashtag, my favourite Twitter handle of recent times, from the Byron Bay Bulldog. This is Michael. He says, I love your podcast. Look forward to it every week. A question. Both of you guys love Warren Buffett, which I did reply to him and say, oh, I'm not sure you've necessarily characterised as well enough, but I'm happy. If, if he thinks so, it must be true, Doc. Both of you guys love Warren Buffett, who holds a large amount of US banks in his fund or in his investment company, Berkshire Hathaway. Question one, do you agree with his holding? Question two, do you think Australian banks are worse than US banks? I would think banking is easier in Australia because of the oligopoly. Regards, Michael. So I quite like this, mate. A bit of a different tangent on banks with a US comparison. Also a bit of Warren Buffett, because hey, who doesn't love to talk about Warren Buffett? So mate, you love Warren Buffett, apparently, according to Michael, so it must be true. Uh, your, th your thoughts on US banks in a portfolio in general, and then your sense of how they compare to Australian banks. Uh, uh, Michael, mate, this is a great question. I love that handle. So that's fantastic. So, um, okay, so I'm not a bank bank type of investor, so I have, I have some views 
because everybody should have some views on banking. Um, so here's the thing. The U.S. banks are large. Also, they're very diversified in the sense that, you know, they have like, they just, they're not primarily retail banks. Like Australian banks are retail banks. Um, so the, the U.S. banks have a lot of, you know, merchant banking, investment banking, uh, you know, trading on. So there's a whole bunch of other things. Um more diversified. So, so I think that's number one point to note. Number two is, I think, so the, so the different styles of bank, the Australian banks are more directly comparable to Canadian banks, where there's a lot of retail banking uh, involved. So that's that. I, I, I don't think you can directly compare them. And then I think the banking sector is more competitive, as you point out, in the US versus it is here because you kind of got you know, a four pillar uh, story going on here. So there's that. So, I mean, it's, it's more competitive there. It's less competitive here, but there's less growth here maybe than there's more growth there, relatively speaking. But you divide the pie among four versus you divide the pie among like 15 or 20. Those are the large banks. And then you've got, you know, hundreds of, you know, smaller banks. So, so there's that. Um, then finally, I guess, the, I guess the only important difference I would point out is, so the debt to disposable income is much higher in Australia than say in the US. And therefore, to, in my mind, it seems like it's hard to grow the retail bank, mm. uh, bank's loan book substantially. Of course, the loan book is aided and abetted by uh, migration, foreign buying. So, you know, uh, you know, new Australians who come in or new uh, migrants uh, who come in, they buy uh, a property or they buy a house eventually. Uh, those things help. And there's, of course, foreign buying that helps. You know, it's a, you know, show is a desirable destination. So there's a lot of money that moves in because of that. That happens in other places as well. Uh, but that's, a, that's an important component. But I think that that is, in my mind, the, the factor uh, to consider. Uh, so it, it, what I like to say is there is no reason for the Australian banks to ever be really trading at a premium to say a US bank if you're thinking about fair values. But typically they have in the past traded at premiums to what the US banks have traded at. Uh, but now they're more or less, most of them are trading around the same values because uh, of what has happened. So that's my view. Uh, again, I'm not a banking investor. Nice mate, I, I think I disagree with you actually. So we'll, just for the fun, fun of putting it out there, um, I think the lack of competition here and the higher margins here probably mean that there is some justification for a higher multiple, um, as it would be in any other industry where the margins were higher. You'd, you'd pay a higher multiple for a business that had higher margins and potentially less competition, given the banking four pillars policy and the kind of you know waste access to time of keating, the kind of inherent protection our banks get from from overseas and local competition and from other banks merging. There is some sense that an oligopoly profit margin is worth something a little bit like, frankly, the, the Qantas and Virgin back in the good old days. Um, you know, their, their margins were higher in Australia because it was a two airline oligopoly. Those guys made more money from their domestic than I think the entire US airline industry as a whole made, um, again, because it was simply more competitive. So I think there's there's some justification, arguably, for a higher multiple. Again, I'm not saying it's worth investing in necessarily, but theoretically looking at those two situations, I, I, would, I would argue that's probably worth it. Um, US banks, I don't have a really strong handle on specifically in terms of the part of Buffett's um, portfolio. Wells Fargo is one he most owns. Uh, JP Morgan he owns personally, but I'm not sure if Berkshire owns any. Um, I think, you know, like there's, there's, uh, yeah, look, I don't have, a, I don't, I'm not going to actually, there's, there's something I can, I can speculate with some stuff, but it's not going to add a lot of value. Um, I, I trust Buffett's judgment broadly, but I don't, I don't have a, a strong view. Um, 
I don't think Australian banks are worse than US banks. I actually like the fact, I think you disagree with this actually, Doc. I like the fact they're more simple vanilla businesses. They're taking less risk. We didn't have any issues during the GFC in part because the Australian economy was okay, but also in part because we didn't have a lot of CFD trading or kind of our retail banks didn't try and get too clever. And I think that put us in pretty good stead relative to say a Lehman's or a, a somebody else who, Morgan Stanley, who had more trouble during that, during that period. So I think... Um, I'd rather own Australian banks than US banks for those reasons. And I do think they're worth some degree of premium. Um, is banking easier in Australia because of the oligopoly? Yes, to some degree. But remember, of course, that it's easier to grow a bank if you're a better bank in a big competitive, uh, diversified kind of, you know, market with lots of, lots of players. So if you're the best bank out there, so take, take grocery supermarkets, right? 40 years ago in Australia, there were lots of different supermarket operations. Blues and Coles were big but not dominant. They just kind of pack-manned up the entire industry, both bought out and took over and beat out the competitors. And they got a lot of growth doing that. You know, they beat market growth because they were literally growing market share, even if the market itself wasn't growing massively. It's easier for an individual bank, if you're a better bank in the US, to take market share from the others than it is in Australia. So to some degree, the, the, the banking banking's cosier here but the upside is less obvious because you can't grow faster than the market because it's sort of a four-way stalemate. In the US, there's literally hundreds of banks. There might be thousands of stock. I can't remember. There's certainly hundreds of banks. And so if you're good and you take up some market share and you kind of pack man the industry, a good bank in the US should be able to beat a good bank here just by virtue of having more growth potential as it pac-mans up a very uh, diversified kind of broken up market uh, compared to Australia. Any thoughts in response? I'll give you right of rebuttal. Oh, I think, I think that's good. <laughs> Fair enough. One more question, mate? Yeah. All right. Question from Jane. We like questions from female listeners, mate, so I want to make sure i got Jane's question. She says, hi, Scott. Thanks for the great podcast that you and Doc put together. As a new investor, it's been really informative. We're pleased, Jane. Thank you. We've recently joined Share Advisor and are looking to buy some US tech shares via Stake. Stake is the online broker. I understand we can buy fractions of shares, but are there any disadvantages of doing so, i.e. in terms of ownership or additional fees? Would love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work, Jane. All right, mate, fractional shares in the US. So we can't do that in Australia because of the way shares are held. We're held in chess here and a share is a share. It's unique. You own it outright in your name. In the US, because the shares are held in the broker's name, they can kind of artificially create fractional shares. You don't really own them and you don't really own full shares, let alone fractional shares. So they can kind of, you know, they can they can apply fractional shares to your account in exchange for cash because it's largely a paper transaction because the broker themselves own the full shares. So it makes it easier for them. And that's kind of nice. Um, so that's how it happens in the US and why it doesn't happen here, at least not yet. Your thoughts, mate, on to whether there's advantages or disadvantages in owning fractional shares. Oh, there are no disadvantages really in my view in owning fractional shares. I mean, you... It, 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 fraction shares are useful largely because you know you've got stock prices of things like Amazon, which is like two thousand yeah. know, four hundred dollars American. So how do you buy if you have thousand dollars to invest an Amazon share if you want to buy, you know? So if you could buy, you know, point one of an Amazon share, that's just useful. I, I don't know why the companies don't split their share, but you know, uh, many companies actually never split their share uh, share price. So I mean, there's no difference really. I mean, in my view in terms of, you know, whether it's fractional or not, it, it, it's an advantage because it allows you to um, buy the shares that you might otherwise not be able to buy. Additional fees, uh, the fees depends on like, you know, a platform like Stake, for example, might not charge anything for trading, 
most of the U.S. brokerage firms now charge nothing for trading. Um, mm. I pay zero dollars on my trades on say, Charles Schwab. Um, a stake would charge on the transaction fee involved for foreign exchange from AUD to USD, and I believe back from USD to AUD. Uh, don't quote me on that. So they, they make money there via the transaction fee and of some money off, you know, any cash held, you know, mm. they would held it in some sort of trust account and then try to get some interest out of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, to me, it looks like a win-win uh, to have fractional shares. I can't see of any obvious disadvantages. Nice. I, um, I don't either, mate. I, like, I mean, you know, I, I have... I have a view, which is that buying owning shares in a street name is marginally disadvantageous to owning shares in chess. So my, my view has always been remains that owning Australian shares is, is safer than owning US shares in absolute terms. The reality, of course, is as long as it's a sponsored broker and you should make sure it's sponsored by SIPIC, S-I-P-C, there's realistically not a lot of difference in, in the, the realities. Like we're talking about fractions of a fraction of a fraction. It, it is literally different um, and theoretically different, but the reality is not that different. Uh, being a little bit careful, look, I don't know at stake where they have fees for, for fractional shares. So just as always, read the fine print, make sure you're not getting slugged with it. Um, you shouldn't be, there's no reason that it should be necessary because that allocation of shares is arbitrary on their paperwork, not in reality. So they, they cost them nothing to make give you a fractional share. And when I say them, I mean stake, but any, any broker. So you shouldn't um, be paying more fractional shares. Options Express that now became Schwab that I'm also with as Doc is, um, used to have fractional shares I used to get I used to have a dividend reinvestment plan where they buy me fractional shares with a dividend. Um, so I had, you know, something 0.93 shares. At that point, I had to email them to get them to sell my fractional shares. I dare say, this is now five, six years ago. I dare say the tech's better than that now. I'm, I hope it's not that painful. Um, so just, just check those things. But no, look, I would, as a new investor, someone who's building a portfolio and you're adding over time, hopefully you're rounding up to full shares at some point anyway. Um, I think fractional shares is a wonderful way to do it. And it makes perfect sense, right? There's no reason that, um, a share needs to be $2,400 or $5 or $10 or $28,000 or they're all arbitrary numbers. You could split them in many, many, many different ways. I mean, one of the great things I heard, I can't remember where I heard it now, Doc, but last week was imagine every share was worth hundred bucks a share. Now what do you want to buy? And you know, it could be, right? You could, we could, you know, if ASIC required it or the, the market wanted to, they could literally tomorrow do consolidations and, and share splits and make every share worth hundred bucks a share or $10 or $1. Um, so the numbers are arbitrary and there's no reason why if you own a tenth of a $2,000 share or a whole $200 share, it's effectively the same thing. So um, assuming that the shares were split 10 for one. So there's no reason why you should be worried about that. I think go for it. Build yourself a wonderful portfolio of great US businesses. Same reason, mate? Yes. Sounds Beautiful. Good. Now I want people to send us their questions and comments and feedback, mate. So what I'm gonna ask you, dear listener, is as you're enjoying this on your hopefully Sunday afternoon, maybe Monday morning, you never know, send us a question, leave us a comment, Ask us a question. Just, you know, get involved. This is best when it's back and forth. This, this whole episode exists because your fellow listeners asked us some questions. So here's how to do it. I'm going to do it in reverse order, mate, just for fun. If you want to use email, you can. I'd, I'd rather you didn't actually because we like engaging socially, but email's fine. Info at fool.com.au. Let us know in the subject line. It's for the podcast and the member support team, the member services team, our crack fools in member services will make sure it comes straight to us. Uh, best way to get in touch with us via email. If you want to get in touch with us using Instagram, Doc's favourite, although he's not there yet, soon, soon, at, at the Dr. Red Panty Investor, as we heard from uh, 
from Teagues. Um, Instagram, I'm on Instagram at TMF Scott P and the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. Hit us up on the Insta. Go to Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise is our corporate handle or I'm Scott Phillips Money. So it's facebook.com slash and then Scott Phillips Money or the Motley Fool Australia. Or if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, where we tend to be most interactive and frankly, that's the only place so far you'll get Doc. So there's an incentive. Hit him up at, at Anirban Mahanti. Tell him whether or not you should put on Instagram. Give him some suggestions, I reckon. Otherwise, I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. That is all of our socials. And of course, as I said on Friday, if you haven't yet, sign up to Extreme Opportunities. Doc service deserves more members, needs more members. And frankly, it's so bloody cheap. It's almost cheaper to join than not join, quite honestly. If he makes you a few bucks, and I reckon he will, you'll be very, very thankful. So go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. EO for extreme opportunities. EO podcast is the URL, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. And you can join Doc and Kevin for like tiny amounts of money, like stupidly cheap amounts of money, and get some great education, some great advice, and some great stock picks. I'm pretty sure you won't be sorry. Mate, that's it. Before we go, though, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app, as always. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, leave us some stars, leave us a review, and, as always, please tell your friends. You can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and an offer to join Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back, well, next week with a regular episode, but also don't forget this Tuesday with Money Hacks. And this one's pretty cool. This one's a money hack from one of your fellow listeners. So tune in to find out who it is, what he's got to say, and do something about it. You'll hear more on Tuesday. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.